Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 8th, 2022. I've really taken this month by the cover story on The Atlantic. We've done a lot of features with Atlantic writers, including uh, an excellent one recently with Jennifer Senor about uh, Steve Bannon. But this story knocked Bannon off the cover of The Atlantic. It's How Animals Understand the World by The Atlantic Science Reporter Ed Yong. Um, uh, not how they sense the world, how they perceive the world. And it's a wonderful piece built around his new book, An Immense World, How Animals Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. Longtime viewers of the show will remember that we've done some shows before about animals and their senses. Did one with Jackie Higgins on what animals reveal about our senses. Uh, she has a wonderful new book out, Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. And at the end of the show with Jackie, I asked Jackie who ran the world, uh, who was in charge of the universe. It was a feature we did a few months ago. And Jackie responded, intriguingly, the star-nosed mole. So I was really intrigued that the Star-nosed mole and its senses uh, and its senses also appeared in Ed Young's "An Immense World," and I'm thrilled that Ed is joining us from Washington D.C. Ed, Star-nosed mole is it exhibit number one? I, it's not central in your book, but I thought it might be an be- interesting beginning uh, on what um, animals' senses reveal about. Uh, the hidden realms around all of us. What intrigued you about Stano's moles? Why did you feature this creature in your book? Um, so obviously it's a bizarre looking creature. It has what look like uh, two hands at the tip of its nose. Um, and uh, those that organ, the star, um, not only looks like a hand, looks like a couple of hands, but actually functions like one too. It's an exquisite organ of touch. As the mole scampers through its dark tunnels, it presses the star against the walls of the tunnel and um, gets a little imprint of whatever's in uh, on that surface. Um, it does this at extraordinarily high speed um, and uses that to capture little bits of worm and insect and, and so on in, in the world around it. Um, it, it's, um, it moves so quickly that in the, st- in the space of time it takes one of us to blink, the mole can press upon a piece of food, recognize it for what it is, slurp it up, and then move on to the next thing. Um, so it, it's a, I think it's a, it's a wonderful creature. It really pushes um, its sense of touch to the very limits. Um, and it shows that uh, sense organs can be very different to what we expect. Here is a creature with a nose that looks like a star and works like a hand. Yeah, you, uh, you argue uh, in your Atlantic piece, every animal is enclosed within its own sensory bubble, perceiving but a tiny sliver of an immense world. Does that suggest that that sliver is more intense if not immense that the the less we perceive the more intensely we perceive it or is that wrong 
Uh, I don't think it quite works like that. The the reason why we have that uh, those limits to our perceptions um, is that nothing needs to perceive everything, and and indeed nothing can. So the act of sensing um, takes up energy. Um, even my, even when my eyes are closed, when I'm not looking at anything at all, um, it soaks up energy to get the cells in my eyes ready to send electrical signals when they detect light. So all senses come with a huge cost to them, and animals only pay that cost when those senses are useful. And that's why nothing can detect everything. I can't detect magnetic fields, I can't detect electric fields, the star-nosed mole is a, a master of touch but has much poorer eyesight. Um, uh, every creature has its own um, umbelt, its own sensory bubble in which it is enclosed. And you know that's that's fine. That's just the nature of biology. Um, you know, nothing can sense everything, and nothing needs to. Uh, Ed, is your book a celebration of animal senses, or is it a warning? Some of the creatures that you write about in the book and in the piece uh, have had their senses undermined, challenged by uh, by us humans. Uh, won't come as a surprise to most of our viewers or listeners here, for example, uh, the tufted titmouse might not hear the alarm call of songbirds because of busy roads. Uh, manatees may not detect currents in, in the water uh, anymore to dodge loud, fast boat. Is the book a warning, uh, 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 an environmental warning, or is it a celebration or both? I mean, why not both, right? The um... The first 12, 13 chapters of the book are very much a celebration of what animals sense. Um, it's a tour through their diverse um, sensory worlds. It, it shows um, how incredible um, those worlds can be and how their senses show our world in a new and wondrous light. Um, but I think it is impossible to write about nature nowadays without um, ringing some alarm bells because we have imperiled it in a number of ways. Now, some of those ways are very familiar. We know about climate change. We know about the, the destruction of habitats. We know about deforestation and the bleaching of coral reefs. But there is an ecological problem that I think most people are unaware of, and that's sensory pollution. It's the light and sound that we have pumped into the world and that distracts animals from the cues they need to pay attention to, that waylays them from migrations or habitats that they would otherwise find idyllic. Sensory pollution is an often under-recognized problem, paradoxically, even though we can sense it, because we don't think of light and sound as possible pollutants. We, we think of them as just natural parts of our lives. Indeed, light at night is something we want more of. We think of it as associated with goodness and with knowledge, illuminating our way out of the dark ages. But light and noise can be highly detrimental to the animals around us. And I think that um, by, by pumping this, um, these pollutants out into the world, we are forcing them to live in our sensory bubble, our umbelt. Um, and, um, and this has had um, this has quite catastrophic consequences for them. You know, in one, in one uh, important but very simple experiment, a group of scientists created a phantom road in um, a, a remote part of uh, Idaho wilderness. They just lashed some speakers to a tree, to some trees, and played the sound of a busy road. That, minus any threat from the cars, any of the exhaust, any of those problems, was enough to drive a third of the species that normally live in that area away from it. 
And those that stay behind, a lot of the migratory birds, were in much worse condition because the sounds distracted them from cues that would tell them about predators, communications from other birds. And it's just one example of many in which light and noise um, harm the animals around us. So, you know, to, to write about the senses of other animals, um, it would be irresponsible, I think, to not then also talk about the ways in which we are, um, we are harming them by not paying attention to their sensory world. Ed, uh, last week I had your fellow nature science writer, Verline Klinkenborg, on the show a New York Times columnist or former New York Times columnist. And he told me um, to write about nature and I guess about other species, he, he focused on the use of simple language, what he called interspecies empathy and using your eyes like a hawk. What did the writing of this book teach you about your senses? Did you have to reach into the senses of other species, or is that itself an impossibility? Well, no, of course. That's the, the whole point of the book, is to think about the sensory worlds of other animals. It's, it's an act of radical empathy to imagine, the, um, to imagine the lives and the experiences of creatures that are so different to us. You know, what is it like to be a um, sea turtle swimming through the sea and perceiving the Earth's magnetic field, what is it like to be um, a uh, what is it like to be a bird with eyes on the side of your head that allows you to have wraparound vision? What is it like to be the same bird perceiving a dimension of colors we can't see, or qualities in their own songs that go by too quickly for us to hear? These um, these attempts to dive into the experiences of other animals, um, I think, give us some profound realizations about their lives and also about the world around us. You know, a, a featureless ocean doesn't seem that much fe that featureless when you think about the amazing sense of smell that an albatross has. Um, the streets around me don't seem so unchanging and boring when I watch how eagerly my dog investigates them with every single walk. But this ability to, this attempt to think about the subjective experiences of other animals is always going to be um, limited. Um, Thomas Nagel, an American philosopher, wrote about this very well in his classic essay, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? He noted that you can learn everything, a lot about the way a bat senses, its ability to echolocate. Um, you know, you can imagine what it'd be like to fly through the air, but that gets you very, very, um, that doesn't quite get you that far in terms of thinking about the subjective experience of a bat. Here's a, a very simple example, a, a, a bat, produces a high-pitched call and then waits for the echo to rebound return off objects around it. The delay between the call and the echo gives it a sense of um, how far it is from the object in question. And by doing this again and again, it can track an insect moving through the sky or work its way through a dark room. Every pair of echo uh, of call and echo gives it one snapshot of the world around it. Now, does it is its perception of the world then stroboscopic? Scropic? Does it flicker? Or is it like our sense of vision, a continuous movie, even though our eyes are blinking all the time? Um, we don't really know that. And it's hard to know that. It's hard to know what else a Batman experience when it echolocates. Um, even we humans struggle to really understand what each other experiences when we smell or see or hear. Um, so there's always going to be this gap, this chasm of understanding, and that can only be let through active imaginative work. 
Um, yeah, you never they, quite make the journey, but the argument in the book is that it is worth making the attempt. Well, the, the attempt is the journey. You begin the book with a quote from William Blake. Um, how do you know, and, and this is a, about knowing, how do you know that every bird that cuts the airy way is an immense world of delight closed by your senses five? We've done some shows on Blake. We did one with John Higgs, who has a new book out about William Blake called um, William Blake versus the World, uh, which might suggest something about our transhumanist future. We also did a show last week with the, I don't know what you would call a radical thinker, Elizabeth Sandifer, who also brought up Blake. Um, is it any coincidence that Blake begins your book with his highly radical sort of uniquely kaleidoscopic way of thinking about the nature of things, Ed? Uh, well, it's a beautiful quote. I think that's why it's there. It's in the same way that uh, my first book about the lives of microbes um, and their interactions with us was called I Contain Multitudes after a similar quote from uh, Walt Whitman's poem. Right. And um, a wonderful song from Bob Dylan. <laughs> yes, that too. Um, Right. So the the nature of um, the nature of the senses, I think, is inherently beautiful. It's, it's pretty it's pretty magical to think about the ways in which other animals perceive the world. And I think that the writing of the book needs to live up to that um, to that uh, quality. You know, it needs to be as um, wonder inducing and as joyful um, as uh, as you know, the topic that it's describing, uh, and and to me that means that it has to be, you know, it's suffused with poetry and lyricism as much as um, you know r rigorous uh, scientific descriptions. Um, which is why, you know, in both cases, these books um, owe their titles to poetry. Might it be any coincidence Ed, that this kind of work? You're a leading science writer, thinker. There are other books in this field, though Carl Safina's work also comes to mind. Carl was on the show, Becoming Wild. This stuff is being thought about as we edge, perhaps nervously, perhaps catastrophically, towards a transhumanist future. <sighs> uh, you know, I see it a little differently. So we, um, a lot of my work has been about trying to find hidden aspects of the world around us. I am um, fascinated by and obsessed with the ways in which nature is deeper and richer than we um, give it credit for. So my first book, I Contain Multitudes, was about how our lives are profoundly influenced by these organisms that we cannot see and yet abound in our bodies and in our world. Um, an immense world is about the parts of that world that we cannot perceive. Um, you know, all the, the skeins of information that are unavailable to us and yet abound around us, but are perceptible to other creatures, the bats and dogs and the dolphins and the elephants with which we share this planet. Um, much of my writing on the COVID-19 pandemic has been about hidden structures in our world that have made um, this nation and others vulnerable to a novel pathogen. Um, so, you know, again and again, I am fascinated by parts of um, our lives, parts of our society, parts of our planet that we don't pay attention to, but should. I mean, it goes back to what we've just talked about, about this 
radical act of empathy, like the necessity of taking taking into account perspectives that are not our own to better understand our place in the world and our responsibilities for its future. It's fascinating you bring up empathy. We've done so many shows on smart machines and AI, and it seems as if the ambition of, of some of the, I can't say all of them or even the majority, but certainly some of the AI visionaries and thinkers is to create empathetic machines. Should we be wary of that, Ed? Uh, I have no view on that. None at all? Well, I have some, but I'm not going to talk about it here. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe, maybe another, and maybe another show. Um, you mentioned the pandemic. Um, you've also done a lot of pieces on the pandemic for The Atlantic. Uh, you wrote a piece about America sliding into the long pandemic defeat uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's getting a lot of attention. Um, if we thought a little bit more empathetically, do you think we'd be able to deal with the pandemic better, Ed? I think it would certainly help. Um, my One of my arguments throughout the, whole, throughout the entirety, of, at least over the last two years, um, has been that the pandemic, uh, pandemics and other kind of large existential problems of that kind cannot be dealt with, cannot be adequately contained through individualistic thinking. And this has been a problem for a country like America, which prizes rugged individualism above all else. Um, you know, it's this is inherently a collective problem and must be dealt with at a collective level. And I think to some degree that d involves a, a strong degree of empathy. Um, that's not a, that's not a sufficient condition, but it is a necessary one. And, and I think especially because we see the same recurring patterns um, throughout history, no matter what the um, health problem of the day is. Um, it, this, uh, this is the theory of fundamental causes, which was proposed by Bruce Link and Joe Phelan um, several decades ago. They argued and noted very, um, very, um, uh, very perceptively that um, in almost every kind of health crisis, what happens is that uh, the minute um, solutions become available, and usually like technological solutions, they go first to people with privilege and power and, um, and, uh, and connections and so on, uh, who then move on, leaving behind a large number of people with no access to these solutions, who then bear the remaining burden of the problem and are left in the same state of vulnerability for whatever comes next. And this is why the same kind of societal inequities that we've seen in COVID also existed for things like HIV, for flu, for other health problems. No matter what the problem is at the time and no matter how much medical um, technology seems to progress, these inequities remain. And that's, you know, that that is part of this, this inability to think about the needs of people other than us. We've seen the same pattern with COVID. People who had first and easiest access to vaccines um, moved on and decided the pandemic was over with no regard for the fact that people of colour are still dying at higher rates. Immunocompromised people still bear a higher risk of infection. A lot of people have been disabled by the persistent symptoms of long COVID. Um, our inability to think about people, uh, think about the needs of others and uh, people who are less fortunate than us, our, ability, our inability to think of the pandemic in terms of 
the risks to each other rather than just in terms of our own personal individual risk stops us from mounting the kind of necessary collective effort that would bring something like this truly under control. Ed, uh, I did a show earlier this week with another very distinguished science writer, George Monbiot. He has a new book out, Regenesis, rethinking the very idea of the soil and nature. Seems as if he is also, along with you, trying to rethink, profoundly rethink our relationship with nature. What do you think your book and your writing, particularly in Immense World, can contribute towards that kind of regenesis, rethinking our relationship with nature so that we challenge some of the stuff you were just talking about, for example, our, our selfishness, our inability to escape ourselves and, um, and sympathize with others? So in a couple of ways, I think um, empathy, I think empathy, I think of empathy as kind of like a muscle, you can build it if you try. Um, and the act of thinking about um, the experiences of creatures that are very, very different to us is one way of doing that. Uh, I think, I hope for readers of this book that they come away with a deeper appreciation of the animals that we share our lives with. Um, you know, for some of them, I've already heard that it's changed the way they, for example, walk their dogs, um, the way they think about um, the, the very obvious creatures that they see on their walks, the, the everyday songbirds and, and squirrels and all the rest uh, that we commonly encounter. But um, there's also part of the, the sensory pollution chapter also makes the point that um, sensory pollution is the pollution of disconnection. It um, severs us from mm. the world around us. Um, so in the early days of the COVID pandemic, when the world was a lot less busy and a lot quieter, many, many people commented about how they heard a lot more birds. And that wasn't just because birds had flocked back to the world in a nature's healing way. It's because when the world is quieter, you hear over longer distances and you hear more. Similarly, when light pollution goes away, you see further and you see things that you would never otherwise see, like the stars or the arms of the Milky Way um, stretching across the night sky. Sensory pollution is the pollution of disconnection. It disconnects us from the cosmos, from um, the nature that is around us. I think it contributes towards nature feeling like it's a distant thing, something that a lot of Americans and a lot of people around the world um, have, have come to believe. You know, when you think of nature, when you think of wilderness, you're more likely to think of something like um, Yosemite or Yellowstone or the Grand Canyon, something grand and sweeping and majestic, a landscape or a vista. But I think that if you think really hard about the umbelton, the sensory worlds of other animals, you come to realize that the magnificence of nature can be found all around us. It can be found in the nose of my dog, in the eyes of the birds that I can see out my window, in, the, um, in my own backyard. Um, the plants around me are thrumming with the vibrational songs of insects that I can't hear. Um, there are smells that I can't smell. There are things, there are colors that I can't see. All of that tells me that the world is richer than I take it for. And, and I think it gives me more impetus to protect that world. And the final argument from the book is that this ability to think about the sensory worlds of other animals, to appreciate these aspects of the world that we are missing, 
is a skill that is likely uniquely human. Um, you know, it is the thing that even for our species, we have only come about, come a, uh, come to reckon with after um, millennia of philosophy and some, you know, centuries of experimentation. It's something that most people today don't even really grapple with. But you know, this this my dog is not sitting outside now thinking about what kinds of colors I see or how I smell the world. Um, mm. I can, like, I can do that. It is, and that is a gift. It is one that I don't think we should take lightly. And with it comes a responsibility for then protecting those other sensory experiences. And when we lose a species from this planet, as we are doing at high speed. We also lose a way of understanding the world, and I think that deepens the tragedy of that loss. Yeah, I wonder whether initiatives like Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse is just uh, making the problem that you've you've discussed even worse. Ed, um, uh, Google seems to know everything about us, so I entered how do humans see themselves into Google, or in contrast with with animals, uh, and. One clinical psychologist, at least, that Google found suggests that we see ourselves, uh, that hum people see themselves through their own subjective lens. Um, two questions, and you've sort of half answered these. Uh, how, how should or how do, ch uh, how do humans see themselves? Which senses are predominant, Ed, and which should be more predominant? I know you sort of enter into the whole Aristotle debate. We talked about this also with uh, Jackie Higgins about how many senses we really have. Uh, Aristotle said five, uh, people like I think Jackie Higgins say more. But how should we think of ourselves, Ed? Well, look, there's obviously not one single human experience. Um, it's often said in writing about the senses that humans are a visual species, but millions of people go on, go by just fine every day without sight. Um, you know, likewise, uh, I have friends who can't smell at all. Um, there are people who are deaf. There are people who can echolocate a sense that most of us don't even think is something that humans can do. Um, the, the umbelt of the human is also incredibly varied. And each of us has our own individual sensory worlds that other people struggle to perceive and inhabit. Um, so, you know, in some ways, this is a call for radical empathy within our own species too. Like in, in the book, I meet a man named Daniel Kish, who is blind almost from birth, um, but who echolocates. He makes sharp clicking noises with his tongue as he walks around. Um, he uses a cane, yes, but he also uses his sense of echoes to navigate around the world. Um, and he does it incredibly well. Um, but now, even here, even though we are two people um, who speak the same language, it is very hard for Daniel to explain to me what he is perceiving. Um, as a blind person living in a world of sighted people, he is still heavily influenced by visual metaphors. He describes his experience of echolocation using terms like bright and flash that he doesn't actually have a visual understanding for because he lost his eyes at such a young age. Um, so when he says those words, is it reflecting the same kind of thing that I think of when I say, when I hear those words? Um, Possibly not. So even though we have the same language, we are um, still coming at this I, this concept of subjective experience from 
you know, from a very, from very different perspectives that, you know, just as with Nagel and his bats is very, very difficult to bridge, possibly impossible to bridge. Um, but again, you know, it's the, it's the attempt that is worth it. Uh, you know, I think in talking to Daniel, um, I stretch my uh, understanding of what um, people are capable of, just as in writing the rest of this book, I stretch my understanding of what other animals are capable of. Final question, Ed, I really appreciate it. I know you're pressed for time. Um, you're telling stories both now and in the book. Uh, we've done some shows on storytelling and nature, one with the two writers, Kerry Arsenault and Bathsheba Demuth, who have created a, uh, a center for storytelling at Brown University, also with the Harvard professor, Mar Martin Puchner, about telling stories about the environment. You are in a sense, telling stories about other species in your book. What's the connection between us as a species in our ability to tell stories and our senses? Do you think that other species, other beings can and should be able to tell stories? I think stories come very naturally to us because we have language that does give us a massive advantage. Um, and, you know, it's a vantage that I've leaned on very heavily in this book. Um, you know, in some ways, language is a crutch for us because, as I've said, even um, for people who are blind, language is heavily influenced by um, the however many millions of us who have sight. Um, it's full of visual terms and visual metaphors which can get in the way of describing the sensory world of other creatures who rely on very different senses. Um, but obviously language is a huge boon. I wouldn't be able to describe what it's like to be an electric fish or an owl or so on without the use of me metaphor and without the use of language and also without the use of stories. Um, the, the stories of the scientists who've done this kind of work are absolutely integral to, um, you know, to, to this field of sensory biology. I think by telling their stories, by showing people how it is we know um, as much as we do about what other animal, animals experience. Um, it makes that whole um, somewhat abstract field of knowledge more accessible and more interesting.